today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. In general, in ophthalmology, there is a gender gap in terms of industry relationship or in terms of compensations and um, earning potential for women and men ophthalmologists. Today, Drs. Parisa Amami and Dr. Glenn Yu rejoin the podcast to discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion in retinal medicine, part two, in this PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Regeneron is pleased to support this educational resource for healthcare professionals who provide retinal care. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the views of Regeneron or its affiliates. Welcome back to our discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion in retinal medicine. Glenn, I understand that you're doing some research on diversity among medical students' interest in ophthalmology. Why did you do this study, and can you tell us what you found? Yeah, so um, you were just mentioning about pipeline earlier, and so that's a very interesting point. So obviously you mentioned that residency is the pipeline for the physician workforce. So I thought about medical school and medical students as the pipeline to residents, because if ophthalmology residency is less diverse, where is it happening? Why are there fewer uh, underrepresented minorities going to ophthalmology? So we looked at the uh, AAMC, that's the American Academy of um, uh, Medical Colleges, and uh, we looked at uh, the survey. So every medical student fills out a survey at the beginning of medical school and at the end of medical school called the matriculating uh, student questionnaire and the graduating questionnaire. And we looked at whether they indicated they were interested in ophthalmology. And what was interesting, first of all, is even before everything started at matriculation, we already saw that men were twice, was 1.5 fold more likely to select ophthalmology than women compared to uh, other subspecialties. Um, we also noticed that blacks were less likely than whites or Caucasians in choosing ophthalmology as a residency. Uh, and Asians, interestingly, were more likely than whites or Caucasians. And that this trend continued to change and evolve during graduating, during the graduation. And so one of the things that we're going to hopefully look at next, and we haven't done that yet, is to look at what are the factors during medical school, um, like what kind of rotations did they have a surgical rotation, uh, what are the different uh, uh, mentorship that they had or research opportunities that might uh, push them toward uh, ophthalmology or not? So what measures or step could improve diversity in ophthalmology in their mind? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Like, where do we start? Um, so as you mentioned earlier, um, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, as well as ASRS, have various types of mentorship programs now for medical students who are interested, particularly those of underrepresented minorities. Uh, one of the things that's difficult, um, though, is that is how do you define underrepresented minority? Um, one of the things I um, uh, noted earlier was that Asians are more likely to choose ophthalmology than, um, than whites or Caucasians, but it partly def depends on how you define Asians. So, for example, Asians is a very broad group, and um, uh, UCSF, for example, defines uh, people like the Vietnamese, like Southeast Asian countries like Vietnamese, Cambodian, or Hmong, as underrepresented. Uh, and actually, the uh, AAMC got rid of all definitions of URM in 2003 um, because of these challenges of how do you define URM. But I do think that there are um, these mentorship programs to encourage medical students who are interested in ophthalmology to be paired with someone who is a underrepresented minority to participate in, you know, in, uh, at the meetings uh, and just see what being an ophthalmologist is like. And I think that that type of mentorship program and shadowing 
uh, opportunities are important. Great. Um, just to add on to the initiatives that you mentioned that ASRS or American Academy of Ophthalmology has women in ophthalmology and Wittbeckel Society and other subspecialty societies also have some initiatives to address this issue. Mm-hmm. We'll see where that leads. Yeah. At what level do you think these interventions or any interventions should be done? Medical school, residency, or before that or after that? Yeah, I think it needs to occur at all levels. Um, I think that it's important to, I think one challenge is that ophthalmology is not a, a core clerkship from most medical schools. So most medical students don't even know what ophthalmology is. And so I think that increasing the footprint of ophthalmology within medical schools, um, I think trying to uh, advocate for more exposure of medical students. Uh, and then I think there's also kind of direct to com- consumer <laughs> advertising. Like I think we just need to, as a, as a subspecialty, need to just do more outreach. Like I try to take in high school, college students into my lab, research lab, uh, to try to expose them to what, you know, ophthalmology is as a subspecialty. So at what level do you think these interventions can be done during medical school, residency, before that, or even after that? Yeah, I think it really needs to occur at all levels. Um, I think that uh, medical students need to be exposed to ophthalmology as early as possible. The challenge is that ophthalmology is not a core clerkship at most medical schools, so it's not incorporated into the curriculum. So I think that uh, increasing the footprint of ophthalmology within medical schools, uh, and we as subspecialists trying to encourage younger, uh, you know, even high school students, college students, and medical students, I often try to welcome them into my lab, uh, come to shadow me in clinic, um, just to get them more exposure to what it's like to be an ophthalmologist, I think would really encourage uh, people from all social backgrounds to uh, to consider our subspecialty. Great. Thank you. So beyond uh, diversity and ethnicity and, and race, um, let's talk about gender disparity. Um, I noticed you uh, published a recent study on gender pay gap in academic medicine. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so we know that the number of the female physicians and female ophthalmologists in general have increased over the past decade or over the past recent years. However, gender gaps still exist, not only in academic medicine, but in medicine in general. Um, Talking about academic medicine, there is differences between men and women ophthalmologists in terms of academic promotion, in terms of retention. In general, in ophthalmology, there is a gender gap in terms of industry relationship or in terms of compensations and um, earning potential for women and men ophthalmologists. So in this study, we wanted to specifically look at the differences in the salary of academic ophthalmologists across the uh, United States ophthalmology programs or all of the programs across the United States and compare this pay gap in ophthalmology with other specialties. So we looked at the data from the AAMC uh, faculty salary report. Uh, all the faculty, all the universities report the salary and co- total compensation of their faculty to AAMC. So these numbers are available for pretty much all the faculty across the United States. So looking at the numbers and looking at the total compensations and comparing female to male ophthalmologists, we found that female ophthalmologists on average, make around 77% of the median salary of their male counterparts. Mm. And when we categorize the groups based on the academic position, assistant versus associate uh, versus chief or chair position, we found that this difference exists in all academic ranks. And the difference is higher when we go to higher ranks to Mm. chief or chair position. 
And this is remarkable because if you're looking at 77%, there's a huge difference. And if it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yes. And if you calculate the numbers multiplied by 30 years or 25 years of each person's academic career, yeah. this is like a lot of earning potential, like over the span of 25 to 30 years. So we looked at these numbers and we compared these numbers in ophthalmology to other specialties. And unfortunately, we found that ophthalmology programs uh, had a higher pay gap compared to non-surgical specialties and even other surgical specialties besides general surgery. In general surgery, that number was 75% compared to 77% in ophthalmology. So there's a huge pay gap. Um, there are previous studies looking at these numbers, looking at early career ophthalmologists. They basically found that the starting salary or the salary of the female physicians or female ophthalmologists in the first year out of fellowship or residency in the first year in practice is a lot less or statistically significantly less than what male physicians are offered or they get paid. And after they compensated for the hours worked or the fertility choices and uh, product, academic productivity, these differences still persist. Yeah, it's interesting you you bring up that point because um, you were talking about like industry relationships. I know Avni Finn had a recent publication that looked at, I think, industry-sponsored trials are much, much less likely to have a female lead author um, or principal investigator. Uh, then I also know Julia Howler had a paper looking at authorship and that uh, women are um, generally, obviously, there are fewer last authorship uh, women, although if you look at the proportion of women, they actually outperform men in terms of the, the portion of women that are generating research and, and publishing in that field. Um, let's talk a little bit more now about um, diversity in clinical trials, because, you know, the question, obviously, we're raising a lot of important questions, uh, a lot of important points about race, ethnicity, gender in our workforce, but how about uh, for our patients um, and how does that impact um, our, our clinical trial design? Um, so. One of the things uh, that has been shown is that there's a lot of uh, uh, companies now that says essentially a lot of clinical trials generally are uh, covered by are essentially the majority of the patients are uh, more usually white, Caucasian, a little bit older, and doesn't reflect the patient population. Um, so do you know what companies and industry-sponsored or clinical trials are doing to try to diversify the patient population a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um this is a very important topic, obviously. We want a diverse patient population when we are conducting these clinical trials because we are going to use the treatments or the medications that are approved because of these clinical trials on every single one of our patients. And if these clinical trial participants are not a diverse population of patients, we are basically excluding some of the patients from efficacy standpoint and from safety standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, studies have been done looking at the composition of clinical trials, and they basically found that, first of all, the important thing is that a lot of these clinical trials don't even report the race and ethnicity composition of their patients. Mm. Um, initiatives have been done by NIH, the NIH Revitalization Act, or the FDA Amendment Act in 2007. Basically, they were trying to standardize the way that clinical trials are supposed to report the race and ethnicity or the composition of the trials. However, if you look at, if you still look at the composition of the clinical trials, we still lack a lot of these data. So a lot of the data and a lot of the conclusions that we draw is basically based on only maybe 50% of the clinical trials that report the data on these patient population. NIH have been trying to increase the number of 
uh, minorities or basically diversity of the clinical trials. But um, again, without having exact numbers, without having data on all of the clinical trials, it is very hard to draw a conclusion. But based on what we have, we know that minorities are by far underrepresented in a lot of the clinical trials. Studies by Kakura Tal, studies by Yoshi Yonekawa's group, they basically showed that in a lot of the retinal clinical trials concerning macular degeneration, vascular occlusions, or DME, there is a huge underrepresentation of minorities. Um, it is hard to draw a conclusion at this point because we still have to weigh these clinical trials. The industry sponsored clinical trials, they take a couple of years to come to fruition. So it's hard to draw a conclusion at this point. We shall just wait and see what those results show. Yeah, it's interesting because the NIH has more uh, say over government-sponsored studies, but a lot of clinical trials in retina particularly are industry-sponsored. I know the FDA has issued guidance that to encourage companies, uh, but they have not much control over that. Um, but we do know, at least I personally know, of several studies from both um, Genentech and Regeneron that's actually uh, specifically looking at underrepresented uh, minorities, especially in diabetic populations, to look at the, the response to treatment. I think that'll be important for our patients. Thanks for joining me today, Parisa. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PB Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pbroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pbroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Parisa Imami and Dr. Glenn Yu, and to Sean Mullen and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. 